The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. I promise you that. Let's see what the buzz is today. Oh, my. Okay, I have a quote from a young lady named Avi Rambia. She was recently, until recently, an industry prof- industry principal at Frost & Sullivan. Now, she's a senior product manager at Amazon Web Services. The title of her article, Get Connected to Profit, Embracing Software Propels Growth in the IoT Era, and this is an expert excerpt I'm about to read you that appeared in a Wikipedia article on software monetization. You're getting the idea of what we're talking about today? Of course you do. Here's the buzz quote. Many traditional vendors still see themselves as hardware providers, first and foremost, even though the most valuable component of their offering is the embedded software driving it. So we've given you the word hardware, we've given you the word software, we're talking about what's inside the software. So what are we talking about really? The concept of software is everywhere. It's resonating with industrial manufacturers around the world as intelligent devices become ubiquitous. If you don't know the word, look it up. It means everywhere. And software is increasingly embedded in traditional hardware products. Monetizing the software as a commodity gives opportunities as well as challenges. Think about this. The ethics decisions. Who's using it? Where does the data go? Any privacy issues? And what about synchronizing life cycles? When does the software expire need to be updated? When does the hardware go bye-bye? These are issues for the provider. So while software lets companies think about new business models and, yes, revenue streams, that's what it's all about. That's what keeps the keeps the food coming and the dollars going, ka-ching. Managing the licensing and the terms of use are crucial to success. It's not that easy, but it's there. There is an opportunity. So our question right now is, are you ready to take it to the bank? Or in other words, show us the money. I have two experts on the panel today. Yes, I know I said welcome, welcome, welcome. That's just a generic for the world. We have two panelists today. Let me tell you who they are before we speak with them. First up, I will be introducing you to Tiest Van Gool, Senior Principal in the North America Communications Media Technology PLM Practice at Accenture. We'll find out what he does in a minute. And joining him on the panel is Michael Claes, Director of Solution Management with the SAP Industry Business Unit for High Tech. So the words high tech and technology have emerged in there. And I'm pleased to welcome both of them. Now let's turn around the table to Tiest. And Tiest has sent us a wonderful quote, actually one of my favorites, from Leonardo da Vinci. Anybody has been asleep for many years and not heard of Leonardo da Vinci? His full name, Leonardo de Serpiel. 
Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519, commonly known as Leonardo da Vinci, or simply Leonardo. He was a busy guy. He's what's called an Italian Renaissance polymath. He was interested in inventions and painting and sculpting, architecture, science, music, math, engineering, literature, anatomy, geology, astronomy, botany, writing, history, and cartography. I told you he was busy. He's also called the father of paleontology, ethnology, and architecture. And according to art historian Helen Gardner, his mind and personality seem to us superhuman while the man himself, mysterious and remote, he is a man of unquenchable curiosity and feverishly inventive imagination. I'm sure that's why Keast has picked a quote from Leonardo. Here's the quote. Yes, Bonnie, get to it already. Quote, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Tiest Van Gool, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today, Tiest? Well, good morning, Bonnie. I am doing fine. I'm calling here out of uh, beautiful San Diego. It's a little early for me, but I'm glad to have I'm glad to be here. And thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the show. We are delighted. So, talk to me. Did you know everything I mentioned about Leonardo? I did not. I, I, I knew he was a busy man back in the day, but I did not know he was as busy as you just prescribed. But it kind of goes, 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 goes hand in hand with the quote that I picked, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. He did a lot of stuff, but he kept it simple. So tell me something. We're talking about software embedded in products, in machines, everywhere. We're talking about monetizing. How do you pull the money value, not just the, oh, it's great, we have it here, but how does it get to the bank, as I said? You're ready to take it to the bank. So what would Leonardo say about this, or how does the simplicity slash sophistication get us to where we want our audience to know they can go? Teast? Excellent question. So I think the reason for, for my quote is that I think technology is moving, as we all know, is moving at a rapid, rapid speed. And I think, as you indicated in the intro, hardware companies are looking more and more to provide the new sets of services to, to, to create new streams of revenue by embedding software inside of their products. I think the key, the key reason for my, for my quote is the fact that, hey, technology goes fast. We can do a lot of stuff. We can put a lot of sensors inside your products. We can capture a lot of data. But that does not necessarily mean you will generate more revenue streams. Rather, what I've seen in the industry is that you will see that we are creating more problems for ourselves that do not really create additional or incremental business value. So my point is, if you want to reap the benefits of embedded software or of what I like to call a living product, be very uh-huh. careful by selecting what types of sensory, what types of so- software do you embed in these products and think about how do they create these additional revenue streams. Very interesting. So it's not an automatic gimme. It's not just going to happen by itself. And as I mentioned, there are responsibilities, there are issues, there are ethics questions. So that's what we're going to have to help our audience understand today. Teast, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for the thoughtful quote. And I'm glad I taught you something about Sir Leonardo. I think we need to knight him, for goodness sake. Too late to send him a birthday card, but we can knight him, I'm sure. So they, maybe we could saint him. I don't know. Now I'm going to turn to Michael Clays at SAP. And Michael has sent us also a wonderful quote. Haven't seen this one in a couple of years, believe it or not, Michael. It's a quote from 2001, A Space Odyssey, a 1960. 
1968 science fiction film produced and directed by the one and only busy guy Stanley Kubrick. Uh, it, now, let's see. It was also collaboratively written, the screenplay, by Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the novel 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was published soon after the film was released. Let me just read you a little recap in case you're new to it. The film deals with the themes of existentialism, human evolution, technology, artificial intelligence, and extraterrestrial life. Who could ask for anything more? It's regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made. It was called culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the U.S. Library of Congress, and in 2010, it was named the greatest film of all time. I don't know if you knew that, Michael. The greatest film of all time by the Moving Arts Film Journal. And if they say it's true, it's true. Now, here's the quote. Hal 9000 says, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. I hope I didn't ruin it. Michael, welcome. How are you, Michael Clays? I'm doing good. Good afternoon, boy. Thanks Hi. for having me. So, oh, what? Yes. The afternoon, it's it's in Germany here. There you go. Happy to have you. So, talk to me. Are you a big fan of Kubrick of A Space Odyssey? How many times have you seen the film? Tell me true. <laughs> Truly, uh, the full yep. film probably two times uh, scenes, and then I started uh, sleeping away maybe two or three times. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I like the film. I like Kubrick. Um, but it gets tiring sometimes if you know the if you know the plot already. So tell me about the quote, and I appreciate that. I think it's the same with a lot of uh, TV TV shows we watch here in the states. I don't know about what you get over there, but they're the procedurals, and you know, it's like you don't really know what's going to happen in the next forty five minutes. Seriously, but you like the actors, so you stick around. I I know how that goes. So tell me, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Who who would Hal Nine Thousand be talking to? Who would Dave be in the scenario of software embedded in machinery and equipment and trying to pull that money? out. So what would he say? So the, the interesting part of that quote is it, it is in a movie that is nearly 50 years old. And I think that is the fascinating part. And all the questions it raises are still very current, very actual, and actually debated uh, as we speak. So when, when Hal, an artificial intelligence, is talking to Dave, uh, a human, um, and makes a decision that is life-threatening in the end to, to Dave, um, it touches topics that are not only philosophical and, and dealing with ethics, uh, as it's mostly discussed today. Uh, it's also dealing, if you think it through, with monetization and thinking about who owns software, who earns software money, and, and what happens with an intelligent device as hell or a small hell um, that we have in a car today or a small hell that we have in a washing machine today. Um, who owns the Intelligence. Who knows? Who owns the knowledge that he acquired over the usage of uh, his life? And as uh, Tease put it, this living, living uh, asset, this living software, is actually something that raises the question: Is it something the producer has to be responsible for? Is he responsible for the action? Is the producer of hell responsible uh, for? Uh, letting Dave in the dark and um, cold universe out there? Or is it mm-hmm. the one who trained Hell? Is it the one who gave him the information and set him up for, for his mission? Um, and if you transfer these philosophical questions into, into money, it's a warranty you have to uh, discuss. It's about who 
owns the, the data once the original owner deceases or sells it off? Do you need to delete the knowledge? Um, all of that is very practical and, and typically not discussed to the end. Uh, as of today, we are speaking typically also about the software uh, in embedded devices as a car, so like aut autonomous driving, having ethical discussions there. But it all can also comes through to monetization and responsibility going forward. I, I like the way you use the word responsibility, and that's what I was trying to get at when I mentioned there were some ethical decisions when I was doing my intro, Michael. Very interesting. You know, this very often comes up when we talk about autonomous cars, self-driving vehicles, and one of the big questions on the table is, would that car protect the passengers or the person who is jaywalking, that's a term we use here in the States, meaning crossing against the light and in danger of being hit by the car. So who's, whose ethics prevail? What is that decision-making like? And it ultimately would be, if no person is in charge of putting the brakes on, it would have to be the machine or the software's decision. So does it get any more dramatic than that, Michael, from your point of view? No, I think it's whenever it comes to life, and there's always the example also, uh, do you uh, save the kids that is crossing the street or versus the, the older person and who makes that decision? Yeah. And actually, yeah. as we speak there, just a week ago, there was an ethics commission reporting to the German government on making recommendations specifically for such scenarios. So it's, it's very current that we talk about that. Um, and in the end, uh, it, it's tough to program ethics. And uh, I think that's one of the tough topics, why it comes up and why it's very dramatic uh, when we deal with that, such an emotional topic. Indeed. And, you know, I think what it all comes down to is in the topic of machine learning, who is teaching the machine, whose ethics, whose culture, whose sense of right and wrong is behind that training? What is the role model? On whom are they imprinting? You know, and Tease, I want you in on this discussion as well. We've often, when I was in school many decades ago, um, talking about biology and, and social culture, and we talked about how a duck will imprint, will follow, the baby duck will follow who he or she perceives as the parent. So if a dog is walking away from the pond, and that's the only quote-unquote parent the little duckling sees, it will follow an imprint and think it's part of the dog's family. So the question that goes back in a very convoluted way to who is teaching the machine? Tease, love to get your thoughts on, on this ethics question before we move on. What do you think? Who, whose responsibility is it? Well, I think it's hard to say whose responsibility ultimately is it. I think the difficulty with, 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 with machines and with what I'd like to refer to as these living products is obviously we, if you compare it to us as humans, if we grow up, I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and to your point, they follow what the mom and dad are doing. Yes. And it is my job to bring, the, bring to them norms and values and then through evolution and through growth they will if everything goes well they will they will they will they will teach themselves a certain a certain a certain yeah a certain set of rules on on how to how to how to deal with life and i think the the key point what we always have heard in 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 the recent days is of course machine learning artificial intelligence i think we don't spend enough time or we don't hear enough about the, 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 instead of machine learning, why don't we talk about machine teaching? How do we teach the machine to, exactly. to deal with these norms and values? How do we do that? And I'm not a data scientist. I'm not the, 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 the physicist that can think about all this, this stuff. But I think that is a big point as, as technology continues to speed forward. How do we provide 
living products with the right norms and values to make autonomous decisions that are in line with what a human would be doing. Exactly. Uh, we're getting very deep here, and I appreciate it because I think this is this is really what would be on people's minds ultimately. So now, Teast, as long as I have you front and center, I we already know where you are, beautiful San Diego. We know it's very early for you, so thank you for the early call. And Teast, I love to ask my panelists, what are you drinking today? Or if there's nothing interesting in your cup, where a cup is empty, tell me what you plan to drink later that will really, really, really make you smile. Teast Van Gogh. Well, since it is this early, I mean, the easy answer would be a cup of coffee with a glass of water. But as we said, that's not too interesting. So um, I'm, I, I live in Boulder, Colorado, and I love beer. So I'm a, I live in Boulder, Colorado. There's a lot of microbreweries there. Combine that with the fact that I, I, I'm an ultra runner, so I run, I run relatively long distances. Um, and the cool part is, I mean, at the end, there is always a glass of beer. So my favorite is a local brew that is called Opslope. It's a Pilsner. I don't like these heavy beers because they get my, I get a headache. But I would, lo- I would like to say I like the Opslope Pilsner from a, a brewery called Opslope in Boulder, Colorado. And I just looked them up. I think I warned you. Oh, got 21 years under that belt. Yes or no? It won't even let me into the website. Colo- Here's, I think you're going to love this. You probably already know this. Colorado provided the backyard. We brought the beer. Meet our cans. They protect our life's work. Oh, I'm looking at these beautiful. It's like a slope, like a mountain slope is their logo. Now pouring 24 reasons to belly up to our bar. Very cool. Right. You agree? T- Have you seen their website, Taste? I have, I have. I actually know one of the one of the master brews there. And just as a, as a little tip, these slopes that you see on the can are actually called flat irons, and those are the three infamous. Well, in 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 Colorado, flat irons are synonymously with Boulder, Colorado. Very interesting, and their hashtag is I pray everything. Now, those in the uh, in the ski world, in the Alps world, or whatever you're skiing up or down, call it usually I pray ski, and I think that means the place you go for that warm, hot drink, the place you show off your beautiful ski clothes, your wardrobe. So they're saying I pray, which is French for after I pray everything. I love that. Tease, thank you for introducing me to Upslope Beer. I might have to go find a can here in New York somewhere. You thank one. you. Oh, that would be very cool. Thank you very much. And wrap it up well, though, in a brown paper bag. I'm only teasing. Michael Clays, I know you're in Germany. Give us an idea where. And, Michael, we'd love to know what time of the day is it. You hinted that it's afternoon. And what are you drinking right now, or what are you planning to imbibe later? <laughs> so it's 4.20 in the afternoon here um, in beautiful Waldorf, Germany. Um, what I'm drinking to right now is rather boring, which is just sparkling water, but I'm planning to drink a, a nicely chilled glass of white Riesling wine, uh, Dr. Lozen. Uh, I spell that for you if you want to look up the website. It's L-O-O-S-E-N um, and the doctor in front of it. Um, so it's a nicely chilled Riesling that is actually uh, grown in the, in the Mosul Valley, Mo- River Mosul Valley, and actually the winery is from the town where my wife is born. So we have a nice relationship to that, to that winery or that, to that location. And actually you get it also in the U.S., uh, in Costco of all places. Um, <laughs> and when we brought, brought, it over to, brought it over to our neighbors, they always were really happy and greeted us with the doctors in the house. And uh, we had a nice evening then, mostly. 
That's mostly, we'll leave them mostly out. Interesting, of course I'm on their website. It says, sophisticated Rieslings from the steep slopes of Germany's Mosul Valley. Interesting because we had the slope on the upslope beer. We were just looking at the logo and now we have the steep slopes of Germany. Uh, What you said was very interesting to me that surprisingly it's at Costco. Kevin O'Leary, who's known as Mr. Wonderful on the TV show The Shark Tank, he is in the wine business, one of his dabblings as as a mega, mega wealthy entrepreneur investor and he has said i believe many times on the show that costco is the world's biggest wine retailer did you know that it's there no i did not yeah there you go a little fact there gotta have a look now i'm gonna pick this up for michael now the website Tease the website is com, and there is a beautiful picture of the countryside and uh, all kinds of countryside. The photos are magnificent. So take a look. Dr. Lucen, 2014, Verlerner Sonnenur Riesling Spatles. I hope I didn't butcher that too badly. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> Very interesting quotes, and I'm going to bore you to tears because I'm going to tell you that they do not let me anywhere near caffeine on SAP Game Changers radio show days. And today Today is Thursday, and I have two shows today, this one and one at 2 p.m. this afternoon Eastern Time, so I'm not going near coffee for a long time. So it's just cool, clear water and a clear mug with a green straw, and the green straw is in celebration. The only color I get is the straw. The green straw is in celebration of the beautiful green, full trees outside my office window and how lovely it is here in late June in New York. That's all I'll say. So I'm going to tell our listeners, don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We're having a wonderful conversation here about software embedded in products. How do you monetize? Software is everywhere. Is it talking to you? Is it making you money? How do you put it into the commodity shelf and get something out of it? Should you? When should you? How do you teach it and train it to be ethical and responsible? So many questions on the table. Our two experts today are Tiest Van Gool at Accenture and Michael Clays at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham and I plan to be right after the break. 90 seconds. You can count them with us. So don't go away. Kevin out. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The manufacturing world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly industry leaders address new trends, overcome new challenges, and take advantage of new technologies. The aerospace, chemicals, high-tech, and industrial sectors are at the forefront of transforming manufacturing operations to truly change the game. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how innovations are driving new challenges and trends across various manufacturing sectors. The Future of Manufacturing with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. 
Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of manufacturing with Game Changers. Indeed, here we are, Future of Manufacturing. We are here with Thies Van Gool at Accenture and Michael Clays at SAP. And I promised I'm still Bonnie D. Graham, and here I am. We're going to kick off our roundtable in earnest with some notes from Thies, who sent them to me before the show. Interesting topics here. Let's see where we're going to start. Okay, living products. We mentioned that a little earlier in the show. He will define that. And synchronizing the hardware and software product lifestyles. Let me read a little bit more, Thies, and then you'll run with it. Thies says, today we see more and more connected products around us and he's got a quote around the word connected connected products being defined as a piece of hardware controlled by software and connected to the internet these products collect various types of value data about usage which is analyzed and shared with other devices I call this living products Tease, please tell us more very interesting yeah I think so thanks Bonnie so as first topic, what I wanted to talk about with 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 you with, with you guys is this one of the things that 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 I like a lot. Of course, I'm part of our product lifecycle management practice. I mean, one of the things is hey, we we are very very we have a lot of people, a lot of smart people that 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 think in terms of hardware, that thinks in terms of bills of material, engineering bills of material, manufacturing bills of material. And how do I translate that in, in, in logical manufacturing routings? And how do, I, how do I build these products? And we've gotten good at this. Many, many traditional hardware manufacturers, are they, they got that down, whether it's the Toyota that we know, whether it's the, the Tesla that we know, the newer companies. But what, what is interesting to me, especially looking at this from a, from a product and from a software and a hardware and a software perspective, is... We have all these technology, we have all this knowledge built around hardware. Hardware has a, cer- has a certain lifespan, right? A hardware product comes, into, comes to life, it gets, it, it gets accepted, it, it grows and grows and grows in terms of usage, and at a certain point it gets old and it starts to lose its value. Well, these life cycles are pretty long if you think about them. Right? Many products that you buy, whether it's a phone, a phone is maybe a life cycle of about two to three years, and then something mm-hmm. new came along, technology went forward, and so forth. That we all understand. Where it becomes interesting, if you think about traditional products, how about we take an embedded T-shirt or a shoe? or a, a, a car tire. We know how to manufacture these car tires where we will, or these shoes, and how long their lifespan should be. But the sheer fact that I embed a piece of software changes the entire dynamic of how I deal and how I monetize on that product. Hey, if I put a piece of software around the tire and I measure how much kilometers that tire has driven, at what point in time can I say, hmm, my tire needs to be replaced. I can calculate that. But where it gets where it gets hard is that that little piece of software right now it's measuring distance. Maybe it can do other stuff. The life mm-hmm. cycle of a piece of software that is embedded is much shorter. So how do you synchronize? How do you monetize the longer shelf life of a hardware product with the shorter life cycle of its embedded or its integrated software capabilities? That is kind of what I'm referring to, right? So that is what I like to call living products, meaning physical products that are reinvented 
as becoming software intelligent devices that can interact with a user base, that can interact with an ecosystem, and ultimately that can give me information. But the life cycle of of that living product is no longer just hardware. I got two life cycles. I got a hardware life cycle and I got a software life cycle. Is that very confusing to to companies, to manufacturers? I'm going to bring Michael in on this. But is this confusing? Is this a, a wake-up call, what you're talking about now, where manufacturers saying, duh, you mean i got to track two life cycles and figure out when they're both going to meet at this fork in the road and when one's going to fall off the shelf and the other's got to get renewed? Do you think this is breaking news or are they very aware? Yeah, this is kind of complicated. What do you think? I think, I think companies realize it, or at least are in the process of starting to realize it, but I don't think they have well enough processes and capabilities in place to actually track a single product with embedded software. So instead of having a single product that I track through my life cycle, I frankly, I got two. I got a product bundle, if you will. I got Mm -hmm. a product that has a hardware and a software component, and I can monetize on both. And I need to make sure that my processes allow me to, in, to upgrade the software component embedded in a piece of hardware without changing the hardware itself. And now how do you deal with that without creating a lot of complications in stating, oh, now this is a new uh, stock-keeping unit because I just upgraded the software. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think we put software on the shelf. You put the tire on the shelf or the shoe, but the software yep. you did not. And I think that is creating an entire new way of thinking that companies very are very slowly in, 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 in adopting. That's why this is a wake-up call, and I'm glad we're talking about it. Thank you. Michael Clay's love to get your POV, your point of view, on what Thies just introduced to us. What do you see? I think it's a, it's a, a good observation. And um, if you ask, are they aware? And it's not a yes or no answer. So there's a, there's a recent McKinsey report, actually, uh, that looked into how um, software... Um, aware are companies, and there's a there's a basically uh, a difference of 300% of uh, the results companies gain from software enabled products um, that have that have a good grab on how to deal with that versus the ones that are just starting. So it's a 300% difference in in productivity and and, and margin you are getting out of it, um, and it's interesting because. It's not the exception that software is in product, as you know. So uh, in that same report, mm-hmm. uh, they also figure out that over the last 20 years, the, the number of companies that um, are depending on software, on software sales, uh, went from uh, 20 to 40%. Um, so that is not the exception, I said, and the well-known co- companies we know have have all that issue, and when I when I was dealing with automotive OEMs, um, manufacturers like BMW and Volkswagen, some 15, 16 years back, the the, the, the difference in the life cycle was mostly discussed uh, as part of the development life cycle. So you started the development of a car about three years before you brought it to the market, and the software development was much shorter because software evolved much quicker. So they those software developers started with that same uh, software for that exact same car about eight months maybe before market launch and and making managing that difference in that life cycle already was the key point they needed to manage and, and didn't know how to do it at that point in time I think they overcome that but now they have a lot of experience right now to do that um, and now this, the, the issue is more on the utilization 
on the usage side, on the life cycle that Thies mentions, when, when do you retire the hardware versus what data do you still use, what software do you still use, um, and when you replace the software during, during the utilization of the hardware over its life cycle. It, it is, as I said, a, a, a completely different picture across the companies uh, depending on how mature they are in dealing with software. Very interesting. Thank you for citing that report. I appreciate that. Uh, Tiest, I'm going to circle back to you. Any thoughts you have on the, the documentation that Michael added to your, your point? Well, I think I think Michael Michael hit the nail on the head. I, at the end of the day, it's it's what what the new capabilities we are traditionally right. If you think about software, we thought about the Microsoft, we thought about the Googles, we thought about maybe Computer Associates and these type of companies. I think that has completely shifted. Right now, the hardware companies are the main drivers behind um, coming up with ways to embed software and to create create solid and continuing new revenue streams. And I think that creates a very interesting dilemma in how do you, and I like to, and I like to quote, this is coming from a book by Eric Schaefer around industry X.O. I think the interesting part there is X because I think we started to call industry mm-hmm. 2.0 and 3.0, but I think his whole point is there is a number of industry changes that are occurring very quickly, so let's not number them, let's keep it at X, so Eric Schaefer, industryx.o. Um, but he talks about synchronizing, how do you synchronize the different life cycles between hardware and software, and how do you now optimize monetizations without wasting, um, wasting value in the hardware cycle versus the software cycle? Very interesting. Thank you. I did find the book, and I'm putting up a uh, putting up a note here. And let me just put this into my. Okay, we're posting this on hashtag SAP Radio. Accenture's Eric Schaefer discusses Industry X.0, realizing digital value in industrial sectors. Thank you very much, Tees. Very interesting reference. And now, Michael, I'm looking at your notes, and here's something we haven't talked about. You're dropping a lot of buzzwords on me here. You'll know which one I'm talking about. Michael says, software sales angle. Some year back, the key question for the manufacturer was how to engineer the hardware software-based solution flawlessly why? To avoid recalls, system hacks, and more. And Michael as well, this is still relevant today. The focus of this discussion has shifted toward how to monetize the software, monetize the software going forward. But buzzwords are freemiums, pay per use, micropayments, sell insight. Okay, Michael, let's get a vocabulary lesson here. How do the freemiums, <laughs> etc., apply to this monetization quest we're on for our manufacturing audience? Go ahead, Michael. And uh, go back one step. So um, I think the main point is that software is different. And IDC put it uh, nicely when they, when they mentioned software is different because once you sold software, it has a, a life of its own after, after this point of sales. And when you, when you bought a software, you are in a B2B environment, for example, you are able to put it on a different hardware you can um, merge it with other licenses you bought. You can split the licenses you have. And when you talk about software, actually what you're talking about is digital content on the one hand side. And on the other hand, uh, you're talking about the entitlements that you, that you get. Entitlements means you not only mm-hmm. you, know, you buy a piece of software which has a product number. That's one thing. But what you actually buy is the rights to use something. And the rights to use something can be manifold. Entitlement can be you use the software, obviously, to make uh, two text uh, 
deductions uh, for, for or to tax claims for for the run for the year and the upcoming year. It is the right to call somebody to help you with that. It's the right to upgrade for the for the year after that. So there are different entitlements that you actually buy, and when you talk about those, those are the actual currency right now. That's what you want to have and that's what your customer wants to use. And managing those and getting the customer to look into those is the key of success. And when you talk about freemium, to come back to your question, um, that's one way Mm -hmm. to lure customer in. If you're in a B2C environment and you want to sell a game, you give them, give your user, give your kids, give your teenagers a free downgraded version of that or you give them access mm-hmm. for two weeks as a as a free time to a play with that and then when mm-hmm. once, once you get them hooked um that's that's when you can get the money and um there's an there's a colleague on idc who always repeats the joke that there are only two companies or only two industries that call their customers users that's the drug uh, business <laughs> and the software business so um, uh, that's true. Something is true. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Continue, please. I, I was just marveling. That's such yeah, so, a such a, a very interesting remark, and we take it for granted. But you're right. Absolutely, we won't go there. Go, go ahead, Michael. Talk more. <laughs> so, um, so once you once you then sold that that software digital content to those users, um, the the trick now is how to create a steady revenue stream out of that. Make it steady and increase it. So you have to de- deliver value continuously to the, to the user because it's easier to swap software versus swapping, swapping hardware. It's much easier for me to uh, go from Yahoo to Google well, several years back um, than, than, than exchanging a hardware piece. So I need to deliver continuous value to the customer because it's easier for them to swap. Um, and then with that, you need to be able to provide upgrades. How do I connect to that device? How do I connect to that user to provide that upgrade? And how do I make them pay for that? How do I provide value to that? And if it's difficult to demonstrate that value upfront, then you go to other licensing models. You make them pay per use. You just try it and you just pay a few cents once you tried it. And if you like it, you continue to use it. Um, so those are the micropayments um, that, are, that are seen in, in, many, in many scenarios right now. Um, or pay um, on a, sub, on a um, subscription basis, pay for a month mm-hmm. only, and you can cancel it, cancel it any time. So what is happening right now is that many of those companies need to deal with all of these scenarios at the same time. That, that, that creates the complexity because sales colleagues marketing colleagues in those companies and those industrial companies are getting creative. Once they saw the opportunity they have to generate new revenue, generate money out of different revenue streams, they want to use that. And IT departments are struggling to keep up with that, to uh, make sure that the creative idea that, ma- that marketing guy had to sell the new version of that software is actually also billable and is according to revenue recognition and so that money that comes in is also being recognized um, on the on the. Um, and in the end, in the end, your statement. So that's where we have those discussions right now. It's not about how to build software or how to um, enable a device that is intelligent. Those they figure it out. The way 
we have those discussions right now with those customers is how do I make it profitable? Even if I get the money, how do I make sure that I don't spend thousands and thousands of, of um, dollars to just recognize and, and book it because it's so complex and our, our systems are not built to, to deal with that. So therefore, those, this is the complexity customers are dealing with and we try to help them in those discussions. Thank you very much, Michael. Very interesting. Tease, love to get your thoughts on freemiums and, and all that good stuff. Have you been hooked by any of that? And, and I'll tell you both that there's a very interesting way here when you go to a supermarket and you go to the deli, the deli department, and you say, gee, how, how is that ham? Or what is the turkey? Is the turkey very fresh today? They'll give you a little piece. Here, taste this, Mrs. So-and-so. Oh, yes, I'd like three and a half hundred pounds of that. <laughs> so that, that's your little, that's, that's been going on forever is that little taste. You go to an ice cream store, they give you that, oh, would you like to taste five of our, oh, yes, oh, my, I'll order three gallons. So, so yes, very interesting. Tees, love to get your thoughts on this whole concept of premiums. I, 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 would, I would even take it a, step, a little step back. I mean, it's not just freemium. I think, as Michael indicates, I think it's the entire different way of thinking about your go-to-market model, right, where... Especially the traditional hardware companies. I mean, it's a it's it's a one and done, right? I, I I capture an order, order gets processed. I grab something out of my inventory if it makes the stock, or I manufacture something based upon the order I received. I send it off on the truck and I install it there, and we're done, right? And maybe we we had some services around us for maintenance purposes, but that's it. I think where where Michael is alluding to, from a sales perspective, and whether it's a freemium model to hook in new people or not, from a sales perspective, we're looking at a different model. It's called a, yeah, let's call it just a subscription type model, right? It's not just consumption of hardware, but it's a subscription. I, as a hardware company, no longer deliver something and I'm done. No, I've I've embedded this this software in there to add additional functions, additional capabilities. And that creates some type of subscription-like model. And how do I, over time, and it maybe ties back a little bit back to this life cycle, right? This hardware product has a certain lifespan, but the, the software embedded in there, mm-hmm. I need to continuously improve that to provide additional services because that's what the customer ultimately paid for. He picked... He picked Google Home versus Alexa because Google Home, that little box does something, but the more important part is that software. And Google Home is trying to play catch-up with Alexa, right, to get smarter in that space to, to, to create a foothold. So I guess the point is in here, from a, from a monetizing perspective, is, is it's not just looking at the one-and-done models anymore. Hey, get it in there and we're good. No, software creates a whole new subscription type a subscription model that requires me throughout the life cycle of the hardware improve the software so the software life cycles are much shorter. And how do I provision that? How do I ensure that I provide the right entitlement to the right to the right person based upon the subscription model he bought inside that hardware? Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, I want to move to a slightly different aspect of this topic, gentlemen. Teast, I'm back looking at your notes here. And here's a term that we hear bandied about. I know that's an expression. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Bandied about all the time. And I'm not sure everybody knows what it means. The term is digital twin and intelligent installed base. I'm just going to let you tell us what that is, please, Teast. Yeah, I picked the topic exactly because because of what you said, right? I think we hear it literally everywhere at the moment. Everyone is mm-hmm. all about digital twin, digital thread, digital twin. But I'm not sure 
and I'm not pretending that I'm the expert here in this space, but I do have a have a point of view on what it is and what it's not. And to me, at the end of the day, a digital twin is nothing new. Right? A digital twin is, is nothing more than what we used to call an installed base. If I put a piece of hardware to a certain customer, I want to make sure I put it there, and I want to make sure I track throughout the lifecycle of the product, I, I make sure I track what's going on with it. That used to be a very manual effort, if you will. Right? I had to go out there, the service guy had to come there, had to look at the machine and say, oh, this is not good, this is not good, I need to replace this, I need to do that, X, Y, or Z. I think... As we have embedded this software, right, I think the key point is we, we can insert now sensors. We can insert now uh, software capabilities to actually provide the information that I seek. So as such, create literally a digital equivalent of that piece of hardware that I can automatically track and trace for, I don't know, maybe... The easy use case there is preventative maintenance. You hear a lot about that, right? In order to do that, I need to know information in an electronic way to understand where is, uh, what is the state of the product, how is it doing, what is it not doing, and, and what does it need. And, 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 and so, so I pause there. Did I clarify, did I clarify the, what the digital twin kind of you did for me, and, I, and yeah, Michael, go ahead. Michael, please chime in. Go ahead. Yeah, I think from a uh, as you as you mentioned, it's not a new concept. I think it's what we what we see is that you saw that in highly regulated uh, industries already. So if you look at a at a plane, uh, there is something like a digital twin uh, for forever. There's you know every screw by serial number, you know every piece that has been replaced by whom when, at what mileage, or, or whatever, <laughs> uh, hours of usage. Um, and the same is true for, for healthcare. So whenever you maintain an MRI machine, you have that down to the, the, the details. What we see, I believe, is expanding that to other industries where it's not such, such a safety-critical issue, but you want to do that with much less effort. As, as he's mentioned, it, it was cumbersome to do that in those industries. Uh, you want to do that with much less effort, and gain the benefits out of that uh, by um, knowing when to replace things, knowing when, when to upsell things, knowing the behavior um, of your customer base, of your install base, to engineer the next product better and so on. I think that's, that's what we see. It's not new, but it's getting broader in usage. Yep. I Think, mean, let, yep. from, from a definitioning perspective, right, I would just say and, and, a digital twin to me is that electronic representation of that product and it's and it's in its in its custom specific configuration, hardware wise as well as software wise. And it resembles the as used product and that's the key word. It is it's a digital instantiation for whatever hardware and software combination that I installed within a certain industry at a certain product. And I think Michael said a very good point. Yes, the digital twin concept is very, very old when it comes or very much known in the aeronautical industries. Why is that the case? And this is the word ethical again, right? Mm -hmm. They had no choice. I mean, you don't want an airplane engine halfway up in the air say, ooh, yeah, I missed a little piece of the puzzle and there goes the airplane. Now you're going to have an ethical problem, right, if, if you're a Boeing or a McDonnell Douglas and so forth. So they had no choice. And in other industries, we did have a choice. The ramification of not knowing that or, or having a system fall out, yeah, 
that was not so nice, but okay, you could survive. Mm-hmm. In an airplane or, or, or a nuclear reactor, these things are much different. So I think the technology has got us so far that it becomes easier and cheaper to equip sensory into less mission-critical products, if you will. So we now have similar concepts in products that, from an ethics perspective, did not require that before. And maybe... Thank Sorry, maybe me, one more, one, one, one addition yeah. I want to add. The interesting part where I also bring this up is that so we did some studies, uh, Accenture as a firm, right, around, hey, this whole digital twin concept. And if you think about it, data, the amount of data that we store on a day-to-day basis, I don't dare to know to call numbers, but it is astronomical and it continues to exponentially increase. But if you talk to the IT executives, right, of the, of, of the firms that we serve, and I'm sure that that, that, that our listeners are are, are part of, seventy-seven mm-hmm. percent of the folks are overwhelmed with the data that these sensors are capturing, and 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 ultimately don't know what to do with this. And this is where the quote simplicity, right, is is, is the of where, ultimate where, sophistication, right? Yes, because. I can capture all this data, but what starts to happen is that I can't see the, the tree in the forest anymore. Yeah, and let's talk very briefly. We are technically, we're right at the crystal ball predictions round in the show, but I do want to cover one more piece of information from Michael's notes before. So I'll give you each 60 seconds for predictions, but let's delay it for about three minutes and then we'll, we'll make sure we cover it. So Michael, you're talking about the evolution in monetizing intelligent devices. And let's go back to the questions of ethics, responsibility, some of the do or die challenges that Tista and you were just talking about in terms of digital twins. I'm going to read a couple of posed questions or posed, shall we say, challenges or conundrums from your notes, Michael, and I just give you about a minute and a half to comment and then we'll go to the crystal ball. So, Tease, you can get ready. So, Michael says, is the next challenge the question of how to dumb down this software to intelligently override the self-acquired knowledge? Because, here are two use cases, it might not be okay to drive 10 miles over the speed limit constantly, although things went well the last few months and it looks like everybody also does it too. Or, it may not be okay to switch off the emergency cooling pump system in your nuclear plant, which I think he's just mentioned, despite the fact that experience says, hey, you didn't need it for the past 25 years. And then the challenge is, we don't want to get locked out in the dark, cold value vacuum of the universe just because a piece of silicon thinks it's right to do so. Michael, could you wrap this one up on responsibility and who is teaching the machines to think and to judge and to make value judgments? Michael, quick thoughts. Yes, I think it goes back, as you said, to the, who teaches the machine and who is responsible for the teaching. And it's, it's much easier to program straightforward, this is what the machine does and this is, these are the boundaries. Uh, if you go to the intelligent device and we want to gain the, the, the benefits like self-learning Go um, machine that like Google Alpha produced and is now beating every every expert on that on that field. Um, there's a lot to gain, and that's why we why we are so attracted by the artificial intelligence. Um, when we go, look forward, um, the the question is uh, valid. How do you define in in programming in code? Um, what are the boundaries, and where can you where can you learn, and where do you need to forget? And if things go wrong, because things happen, and programming has bugs. How do you make sure that the producer of that artificial intelligence has the right to go back to that 
instance to that asset to that machine and just erase that knowledge just erase that it it is used to drive five five miles more because everybody does so um so that's where the question also comes in, in into monetization and, and um, responsibility how do i make sure that my vendor my siemens my google my ibm has the responsibility and the financial possibility and it uh, is attracted to make sure that their devices, even when they are teached by somebody else, are still following some principal rules. And that is not solved so far. Uh, there's a recent uh, discussion, uh, somebody t- um, who was teaching as a professor in St. Gallen, uh, who wrote some books about autonomous driving, said he doesn't think there is an ethics that can be programmed into a, into a car. What you can program is mm. strict, strict algorithms and uh, make sure those algorithms are followed, and if none of these algorithms is valid, nothing happens. It's always break. It's always break. Look for an open space, and then let the crash happen if none of this happens. That's the only rule he sees, and there's no ethic he can see to be implemented in that in that um, car. Uh, the, the, the guy is called Andreas um, Hermann. Is the last now, you, now you're scaring me. I'm going to take a pause. A great, great example. Thank you, Michael. T, 60 seconds exactly. Predict for me, please. What do you see from your vantage point working at Accenture in this industry? What do you see coming down the pike? Or coming down the pike. There we go with a car reference uh, or, or covered wagon as the case may be. What do you see in the next couple of years, maybe around the year 2020? What will change if we met again and had this discussion one more time? T, Van Gool, Accenture, 60 seconds. Let's hear it. All right, let's try. Um, so first and foremost, I think the living product, as we've talked about in, during the session, I think that continues to grow. And I think the data that these things will continue to capture and the integrations that they will have with one another will exponentially grow. Um, that is foreseeable. I think where it becomes interesting is if you now add to that quantum computing. So I think that fundamentally will change the way we think about software and we have to continue we have to completely now rethink not only how do we how do we enable how do we how do we continue these new revenue streams that we just found with new technology first and foremost but secondly because i can do so much more and so much faster because of this speed because of this, these technologies it continues to blur the line between decision-making by a human versus autonomous decision-making. Question then becomes machine learning versus machine teaching. How do I get the right norms and values instilled in that in-how, if you will, to to use Mike's reference? How do we ensure that these norms and values are being followed? And ultimately, how can we ensure that people are comfortable with what we as technologists can make machines do, right? We are literally the guys in the circus that have the animals do whatever we want, right? Ultimately, (laughs) that's what we're doing in technology. And the question now is, and you saw what happened to Google. Google, for instance, and I use them as a reference. Tease, wrap it up. We're out of time. Wrap it up. Go ahead. Okay, so that is ultimately what I'm thinking. How can people accept the technology capabilities that we can bring to bear? 
Thank you. Michael, I'm out of time, but I think we got your forward-looking statement when we talked about even the statement a few minutes ago, can you actually teach ethics to a self-driving car? So, Michael Clace, I'm going to say thank you to you for your great insights. T. Van Gogh Accenture, thank you both. Shout-out to Thomas Pohl at SAP for putting together this wonderful panel. Thomas shares sponsorship duties on this series with David Parrish and Stefan Gertzkin and our series. This one is called The Future of Manufacturing with Game Changers Radio. Good discussion. Software is everywhere. Show us the money. We learned how and how not and what in the heck it's all about. Digital Twins and the rest of the family. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. I want to do a shout out to Kevin at World Talk Radio. Thank you for getting us on the air and keeping us there. I'll be back at 2 p.m. Eastern today with Utilities of the Future with Game Changers. Don't want to miss that one. So here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. Talking about self-driving cars, Michael Antiste. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Tiste Van Gogh, just like Michael Clays. Have a good one. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the Future of Manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.